please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. My friends, now open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're about to conclude this Gospel of Matthew. It's one of the most important writings in the whole of the Scriptures. I trust that it's been profitable to you and to your family. Our text will be Matthew 26, verses 14 through 25. Hear now the word of God. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray to betray him, Jesus. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Thus far reading of God's holy inerrant word. All flesh is as grass, its beauty is as the flower of the field. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. As the word that was just read to you by God's grace, it'll be preached. Please have a seat. Stories are, are powerful things. Stories that we have handed down from our parents and our grandparents are especially meaningful to us, and they can uh, affect us in a very, very powerful way. Things that they say to us as we leave home. Things that they say to us as they leave this life. Stories are powerful. We just sang uh, a portion of Psalm 78, where fathers are to instruct their children. And what are they going to be instructing them? Yes, we have catechisms. Those are important. Teachings, doctrines, dogma. We're Presbyterian. We love all that. But all of these things have to be situated in stories to really affect both head and heart. And among the stories that are most powerful are biographical stories, especially if they prove to be true and accurate. One of the best ways to really understand your times or the times previous and other places, other people's lives, is to study the biography of a key person in that history. And today we're going to be examining, I'm afraid very closely, Judas, Judas Iscariot, a key player in the ministry of Christ and a very important disciple in the band of the Lord Jesus. Judas comes up here in the 26th chapter very, very significantly and for a very good purpose. Because although we have to be careful how we understand the Scriptures, I, I, I want to say that Judas represents everything. Even his name represents everything, that a covenanted people before the Lord 
might and joy of God and fail God. We mustn't ever think that these things were written as an academic exercise for us to know certain facts about the Jews and Jesus' day and all that. We have to understand that all these things were written for us, that God's people, the church, unto whom the ends of time have come. And that ancient people, the, the Jews, who were uh, of the flesh of Abraham, at every possible advantage. Judas had every possible advantage. But the nation had failed. The leaders had failed. They did not receive the messenger of the covenant as he came and heralded the coming kingdom and the king. His message was clear. It was a, a clear sound, a trumpet in the wilderness. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And with that repentance, John the Baptist insisted, do not miss this one the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. No, I'm not him. I am not he, he said. He's the one that will increase in you, and I, we decrease. Some came and were baptized, many. Many were insulted by that message, questioned John, and then since Jesus had the same message as John, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he pointed, of course, to his own self <laughs> as the lamb. Since many didn't see it, they missed. And Judas, Judas, having gone through all, now, at the critical spot, the day before God reconciles the world to himself in Christ, this is the kingdom. By less than 24 hours. But he misses for an eternity. This is not written so that we can learn Bible facts. This is written for our admonition. We might always revere God watch our hearts and know that just because we look great does not mean that God looks upon us as great because we may be among God's people and not with God. Now, I, 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 that's my... I hope I've got your attention we need to pay attention to this verse. Eternity is at stake, and this may be the day of your soul springing forth into life, or it may be one that will you finally decline and join the misery of the almost saved. The teaching here is this. Outwardly, Christian hypocrites appear to be true disciples of Jesus. Outwardly, they manifest every sign that they are indeed Jesus' disciples. But inwardly, they are full of greed. All sinners then, including hypocrites, must continually turn from sin to God. Continually, continually. Not just once at the River Jordan. But with every breath, knowing that we are not worthy knowing that we must mortify sin, knowing that we are debtors to grace, knowing that God forgives us, knowing that we must walk in the light as he is in the light. We must continually turn from sin to God or face eternal condemnation in hell. And that's the teaching. Three points. 
First of all, we, we must see that religious hypocrisy can be very difficult to detect in any individual, and especially in the church. We've already heard the preaching of the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. They looked exactly the same. They all had lanterns. The chief difference, five were wise, they had the oil. Five were foolish, they ran out of oil. They were all representing the anointing. And the residence, the dwelling, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. You may have every visible outward emblem of being a Christian because you are in the community, the visible church, and that Holy Spirit is powerful, and you will have an, an anointing, that is to say, an outward advantage of the Spirit's powerful working in your life, but not in a dwelling way, not in a residing way. And you will be found to be foolish on the day of his visitation because you will not have the oil. Anyway, that was a, preach of, a previous preaching. I don't need to return to it. Religious hypocrisy can be very difficult to detect in the church until sin becomes manifest, and then it breaks out like a flood into, into scandal of a church. It begins inwardly. You begin to ignore your sin. You begin to breed lust and greed. You begin to, you begin to, you begin to nourish and feed hatred and dissension slander, and schism. It begins in the heart, just like we began in the Sermon on the Mount, just like it begins with every single day in Jesus' ministry, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Hypocrisy is loathsome. It's a loathsome sin. We don't see it until sometimes it consumes ourselves, it destroys us, it destroys our family. It'll destroy a workplace and a corporation. Corporations, Texan incorporated entities are brought down by greed and mischief, lying and thievery. Whole lives are ruined because people are hypocrites. Hypocrisy is a loathsome sin, and there's really no greater hypocrisy in Scripture than Judas's hypocrisy. I want to say this, we have to examine this because there are some Christians, you read in their commentaries, they're hoping that Judas is saved. And it's plain by Jesus' own words that he's in perdition. Hypocrisy has taken the Lord's name in vain to the extreme. You're baptized, you make a vow, you live for God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you bear his name all your life. You promise to subdue the flesh. You promise to fight Satan. You promise to war against hell. And all the while, you're warring against heaven. That's hypocrisy. It's a breach of the third commandment. Hypocrisy is a loathsome sin, a most grievous sin, a detestable sin, because it portrays the Holy Lord, the prophet, the priest, and your, your king, as a minister of iniquity, a minister of sin. You're bearing his name wherever you go. You represent him. And it looks like you are aiding and abating Satan. It's blasphemy. And yet Judas outwardly resembled a sincere disciple. Nobody suspected any mischief in Judas. Judas, after all, his name means praise. Paul says the true Jew is not one who re receives praise from men. It's a play on word, Judah, Judas. Paul says in Romans, the true Jew receive, receives praise from God, as Judah did in the Old Testament. He was one of the chosen twelve. Judas had the best teacher in Jesus. No better minister. No, no, no better scholar. No one who understood 
the scriptures as our Lord. No one who spoke as the Lord. No one who was plainly blameless in all things. And Judas had worked miracles, had delighted in healing people, had, had walked long miles town to town, city to city, accompanying Jesus. He'd seen widows relieved of their dead. He'd seen the lepers cleansed. He'd seen the sight of the blind restored and the deaf now hearing the gospel with their own, with their own ears. He himself had preached, maybe taught. Are you getting, are you, are you getting the picture? He was Jesus' treasurer. He was trusted with the money that he lusted after. He was trusted. Is this irony? The Lord did this. The Lord often, bring, often brings someone into position of authority and leadership for any number of reasons. Judas, and this is why it's very difficult, my friends. This is why it's so very difficult to extend pity. But we must, because after all, Judas is a creature, and we're creatures, and we're made of the same flesh. And if God doesn't turn us, we're not turned. We can't change our spots if we're leopards. We can't change our skin if we're Ethiopians. We're, we're, we are what we are by the grace of God. And Judas, Judas is what Judas was. Judas did not stumble into sin. He didn't have a weakness. He, it, this wasn't that he was hangry, you know, I love that word, you get that. You know, when you get, when you get hungry, I, I, your blood sugar drops and you, things upset you. The waitress now, she's trying to bring your food. Why bite her? You know? Right? There's no need to be hangry, hangry. Well, there's, this is a weakness with those that have sugar problems or medical problems. But Judas cannot be excused here. He... He did not stumble into the sin. He plotted Jesus' murder. And Psalm 36, verse 4 says something about those that do that. I think it's the spirit of Jesus in Psalm 34. Excuse me, Psalm 36, verse 4. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He had ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed he sets himself in a way that is not good, he does not regret evil. That is a, a, a typifying and personifying a wicked person. This is not, oh, listen, no, I didn't mean any offense. Please don't take offense. No offense was, was intended. Please don't take the offense. It's not that. This is malice. This is a polished knife going into the back of the Lord. Judas failed God's means of grace, every means of grace. But especially, again, as, as the purse bearer and thief, another irony here, Judas, Judas fails the means of grace by profaning the means of grace in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, what was that Feast of the Unleavened Bread? What did it signify to the Jew? The Feast of the Unleavened Bread was when the whole nation was preparing for the Passover, and what the Passover was to symbolize, forever, forever memorialize, the bringing of God's people from the bondage of slavery under Pharaoh, which is a type of the world and Satan, sin, from that domain into an estate of liberty under Jehovah. It was, it was a preparation, and that preparation is not done merely by a sacrament, but by a heart preparation of repentance. Do you see? Do you see that the exodus here in Christ on the Passover is the very exodus that was typified in Exodus chapter 12, and the very thing that John the Baptist is trying to effect in Israel at the Jordan. 
prepare you the way of the Lord. He's at the, Baptist is at the very wilderness. Baptist is right there. And you, not, you, you need to go through the waters. But not as a ceremony, as a heart condition. Judas failed God's means of grace in the very first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. He should have been cleaning his house. He should have been ridding himself of leaven. He should have been preparing for the Passover. And he missed John the Baptist, and he missed this. There are so many means of grace that are here for our good that God has set in place, and we come through here like some nombulous. It's a big word meaning you're sleepwalking. You come through this, and all you do is sit here, and you wonder when this thing is going to be over because he's going to go long again, and you can't wait to criticize something about what I've said or what somebody else said in, in, in Sunday school. Or you can't, get wait, can't, get, uh, can't wait to get back to home and, and, and channel surf. You're going through the motions of the means of grace, but a heartless way. There's no heart in you. And the reason there's no heart in you is because there's no Christ in you. Preparing and not preparing. Do you prepare for worship? Oh, well, there's always time later. No. Judas missed heaven and his Passover by less than 24 hours. Judas would not leave his Egypt. He would not go into Jehovah's exodus through the body of Christ. But he had his own door, didn't he? He would leave on his home terms. Not the Lord's Passover. He chose suicide. And that's the wages of sin, is death. That's what you reap when you sow sin. Receiving the Lord's Supper presumptuously. People, people will take the preacher to task. Oh, that's not what the passage means. Examine yourselves. Oh, that's completely out of context. That had to do with Corinth. You're celebrating the Lord's Passover tonight. You should be purging your house of leaven. Are you wise? Or are you so caught up in your typologies thinking that they're only academic exercises? My friends, this is, a, this is a religion and a faith that must be experienced from the heart with joy and with peace and in hope. This is not about fat heads and diplomas. Receiving the Lord's Supper presumptuously without a self-examination profanes the sacrament. And people are tired of ministers fencing the table, so they would rather absent themselves from the sacrament. They don't come. Well, tonight we have the Lord's Supper. I wonder who's going to show up for that. Very low attendance on Sunday evenings, even if we offer the Lord's Supper. The king is beckoning you to his table. What do you got better than that? You have something better than that? Only the Lord can judge the heart. This is the problem. Judas couldn't see his heart. And so what you need to do day by day is you pray to the Lord that he show you the way. And I keep camping on Psalm 139, verses 23 and 4. And I think the English Standard Version has it right. I hadn't seen this before. I, as I was writing it carefully, preparing for the sermon, I saw something. And I'll show you what it says. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Try me and know my thoughts. Exclamation point. That's the English Standard Version. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Exclamation point. This is an earnest prayer. An extremely important prayer. And David, who was wise in the wisdom literature of the Psalms, is telling us that we ought to have the same emphasis and the same zeal that the Lord searches or we remain unsearched. And if we go on being unsearched, we'll be comfortable in our sin and never repent. It just, we'll, we'll think we're just fine. And the more we think we're okay, 
the worse everybody else in the church looks, especially the leaders. Oh, man. That's called hypocrisy, meaning overly critical of others, but not of self. You're foolish to judge another person. You've had that warning from the Sermon on the Mount. You point the finger, you've got a log in your eye, that's going to show up. It will be manifest, maybe not to you immediately, but you will in the last see. You are foolish to judge another person without due process in the church. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 says he doesn't even judge himself ultimately. He relies on the Lord. He knows he doesn't have the ultimate authority to judge even himself. And that's why he's asking the Lord to give him some light because he wants to be on the right track. How is it then that you fail to judge yourselves properly and you're so quick to judge others in the church? Because religious hypocrisy can be very difficult to detect in the church, but you are so wise that you can do it and you are expert at it. And this is a marvelous thing, isn't it? You need to repent. You've missed the Jordan by a mile. You've missed the Exodus by a mile. Unless you repent, you will perish. The second point is that religious hypocrisy is, is, flu, is fueled by covetousness, by desires, by fleshly desires. It's not your personality. It's not, your, it's not religious conviction. It's none of those things. It's your lust to power or greed or fame. Judas never heeded the call to repent. Judas publicly appeared to have great faith. He fooled everybody, except the Lord. The Lord Jesus was not fooled. But Judas would steal. He would continually steal. He would, he would continue less, continue, not continuous, not continually, but continually, continually, continually steal. There's a difference. One is a perennial visitation of the purse, but if he could get away with it, he would always be stealing. That was his heart, resting in iniquity. It was his habit. He didn't fall into this. Habits, once nurtured and established, corrupt character. And people can see it. There's no love to this guy. Why is, he, why is there no concern for the poor or for the children of the church? or for people that can't profit him. Why? 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 That was his habit. The love of money is the root of all evil, says Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10. There's several examples in, in the scriptures regarding a complete falling away. A complete falling away. Not just a discipline, but a complete falling away because of the love of money. On the part of a covenant uh, a child. That, that, that there is, war, is also written as a warning. Gehazi under Elijah. You can read that. Struck with leprosy, shame for the rest of his life. Cut off from Israel. A leper was cut off. No communion. No communion. It's the Lord's discipline. Demas. Many travels, many miles, many missionaries, many preachings, many teachings. Demas. Under Paul, what does Titus 1, 11 says? Paul, Demas, no, all, all, have all have deserted me. Demas has left, loving the present world. What is that but lust? What is that but the love of money? Covetousness. Hypocrisy is fueled by covetousness. Judas used his calling as a cloak for unrighteousness to advance his self. He didn't come out and introduce himself. Hi, I'm, I'm your treasurer, but I'm really a thief. I'm, right, I'm wearing this outfit. I look like a disciple, but really I'm a red devil with a cape. They never come across that. Don't watch any more Disney stupid movies where the devil looks ugly. The devil always looks great. And you do too. If you're self-deceived in the church. Judas was not a contented man. Being Jesus' close friend was not enough. Having the prophet having the, the virtual, the whole thesaurus, not the virtual, the essential thesaurus, all the treasury of wisdom and knowledge 
in Jesus as a friend and access anytime he wanted, that's, that was not enough. That's not enough for a covetous heart. Judas loved the wages of sin more than righteousness. He loved the wages of sin, 30 measly printed coins than the living Savior, the creator of the ends of the earth, the heir of all things, the only innocent Lamb of God, the precious virgin, pure Jesus. He accepted the betrayal price of 30 silver pieces. He named the pieces. And in naming it, he fulfills Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. This is fulfillment of the scripture. Jesus knew it. Psalm 41, verse 9. Again, the spirit of the Lord Jesus. If you don't know the Psalms, I, I, I would encourage you to read them daily. Yes, daily. You will find, as you get to know the Psalms more and more, you will find the intimate expressions of Jesus' very heart, his mind and his heart, his, his, his psychology. Jesus' mind, his psychology is in, is in the Psalms. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Do you know what betrayal feels like? among intimate friends. Have you been betrayed? Have you ever been betrayed? By someone whom you've given a lot to trust? A steward? Caring even your very name. Judas, of course, was deceived like most of Israel, like most of the leaders. They were deceived. They saw no need for it. No, they saw no need for repentance in Judas went along with the show. God's sovereignty in election, predestination, reprobation. Here is before us. I alluded to already, do we pity him? What is it? We're responsible for our sin, and yet the scripture will be fulfilled. Paul speaks of that later as he addresses the sin of the leaders in recapping what happened with the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem in his last days. He says in Acts 13, verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, that is Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, the leaders, that carried about them the long scrolls and read from the scrolls every, it says here, which are read every Sabbath, These leaders, not, recon not recognizing Jesus, nor understanding the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning them. If that is not irony, if, if, that is not, if that is not frightening, if that doesn't speak to the utter, utter danger and deceitfulness of sin, and we treat sin as a light thing, well, the Lord will forgive us. And we don't understand that it is a trap. It's a prison. And if he doesn't deliver us, there is no getting out of those brass bars. You're in hell. Judas was deceived. He hated the teaching of repentance. Repentance has reference both to law and to grace, because it's a turning from sin, which law speaks of, to God, which gospel in Christ speaks of. Repentance ought to be welcomed by every Christian, because it's liberty to the sons of God. It's the royal law of liberty. It's in keeping with walking in the Spirit. There is no walking in the Spirit and admitting you're a sinner unless you admit and truly love and seek repentance. And yet it's a word that's not very often heard from the pulpits because it's not understood by those who are preaching it and because it's not experienced by most people who preach the gospel. That's the sad commentary on today's church. We lack gospel repentance. 
Are you a malcontent? Nothing pleases you. Family, job, you married the wrong spouse, children, nah, nuisance. Church, huh. I go to church. Well, it's just trouble there. You think you deserve much better. You know much better than most anybody. But the bottom line is that Jesus is not enough for you. And if somebody would throw you a crumb under the table, like Jesus referred to that Tyrophoenician woman, you know, she said, hey, even the dogs get the, some of the crumbs under the table. If, you, if, if that was referred to you, you'd be incensed. You'd be so offended. But one crumb from the hand of Jesus at his table is more nourishment than you will ever get by any other means in this life. And you ought to go home contented. You ought to be going home thankful. And we'll see who shows up tonight at the Lord's table. Religious hypocrisy is fueled by covetousness. The third point is unrepentant sinners, they will perish in hell. Covetousness is a leading gate. The commandment, the 10th commandment, is a leading gate to the rest of the commandments. You have to break the 10th before you break any of them. And as Hebrews 13.5 says, keep, you free, keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with whatever you have. For he has said, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Even to the ends of the earth. Jesus is with his believer. But unrepentant sinners will perish in hell forever. <laughs> the Son of Man must go to the cross, he knows that. But he must be betrayed by one of his own dear, close friends. Here we have a conversation in the upper room. We're privy to this. This is the privy council of his, the king with his advisors, his closest friends. We're given insight into that occasion. This is history that should be passed on from father to son, from church to church, and not just as something that we can write songs about and sing, as in Psalm 78, but as something that we do out of interest with the, for the souls of those who are under our care. It prompted a question. Is it I? That's a good question before coming to the Lord's table tonight. Is it I? Eleven were sincere. One was utter hypocrisy and devilry. You can ask the question. It's, the word can be in your mouth, but not in your heart. Uh, you know, you will speak, you will eventually speak within your heart. And if your heart is full of love, you'll confess rightly and ask the Lord to search you. Is it I? You don't have any, any business with that. You know you're all right. All this subjectivity, all this terrible, it, 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 it's so subjective you can't. Who knows, right? Why even bother God with this? Well, because the Spirit is leading you to do this. He wants you to do this. He wants you to ask, is it I? He wants you to ask but not in hypocrisy. This, book, this question should be in the common prayer book. Is it I? Before we come to the Lord's Supper. Woe to his betrayer. We're back in chapter 23 again with Matthew. I, I, I don't want to go back. That was a terrible, terrible chapter to preach. But Jesus here says it. The reality that sinners hate to even think about. His conclusion is that, and warning to his disciples, it's better never to have had a being. It's, never, it's better to have never been born. Never, it's better to never have, been, have had a birthday than to have a being in hell. That's what Jesus is saying. In hell, there is simply no remittance of sin. There, because there is no remittance of sin because the day of faith is over and the day of repentance has passed. Judas missed it by less than 24 hours. The day is gone and you are not turned. The day is gone and Judas is still Judas and not Christian. Better not to have had a being 
than to have a being in hell forever. No remittance of sin, endless shame, endless suffering, even after millions and millions of ages, you look forward to a rolling millions and millions of ages. And this doctrine of hell needs to be preached much more clearly. I don't have the time, we're out of time on this, in this day, to, to tease it out and to unpack it. But Jesus here, the great prophet, affirms that hell is everlasting torment, everlasting shame, and that's what we need to believe, and that's the warning that we have. Let me conclude this preaching. Christian hypocrites appear to be Jesus' disciples outwardly, but inwardly they're full of greed. All sinners must continually turn from sin to God or face eternal condemnation in hell. We are clear. We are Presbyterians in our shorter catechism. We believe to be spared the wrath and curse of God. God depend, we, 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 God requires of you faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of the means of grace, whereby Christ furnishes to us the benefits of his redemption. Judas was not diligent in the means of grace. Judas was present in Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover, but he was far from being diligent in the means of grace. He was not prepared for the great Passover, the essential Passover. That is to say, Jesus leading captivity captive to all who believe in him, we find ourselves in union with Christ in the Holy Spirit. When Jesus dies, we all die with him. Through union in Christ, we participate in his death. We participate in his life. That is the gospel to all who believe. It is an exodus from this world of damnation and law to the world of grace and an estate of salvation and life everlasting. That is the gospel that we proclaim. But it begins always by removing the leaven. And you can't do it. That's why repentance must be preached in the church because it's an evangelical grace. And with that word comes out the spirit. Always word and spirit go out together. And when you hear one and the minister appealing to you strongly to do it, it's because God wants you and wants you to do it and welcomes you to do it. And that's why we insist to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive Him, trust in Him for all your righteousness. And He will give you His righteousness. Furthermore, you are to use His Spirit to absolutely wage war on the remaining corruption. And you do that with every means that God gives you, which includes the preaching of the word, attendance on the sacraments, prayer at your home, Bible reading, and good godly conversation, works of mercy and, uh, and uh, sympathy to the poor. All those things are, are means whereby God mightily attends you and visits you and blesses you. There's utterly no hope without these. Utterly no hope. Contradict this, and you phone, and you are declaring your foolishness. Beware of covetousness. Covetousness is idolatry. Put to death, says Paul to the Colossian church, a number of things, all heinous sins. But covetousness, which is so, which is so subtle, because it's the beginnings, it's the first moments, the first movements of our hearts towards something that God deplores. The first tiny impulses that we, that we agree with and we begin to fuel and nourish in our hearts is covetousness. It's an internal war. Read the Sermon on the Mount. That's where the battlefield is. That's where the lines are drawn. 
not on Capitol Hill, not in the PCA denomination, not at baptism. It's in your heart. Put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. And if not, you need to understand this. It's either, it's, it's come to this, my friends. It's either going to be your love of money as Judas or your love of Christ. It's as simple as that. No man can serve two masters. Again, that's review all the Sermon on the Mount. It's all there. Now, my friends, the gospel is good news to people who know they need saving. The gospel is good news to people who know that they are sinners and welcome a walk with the Savior. Count it an unspeakable privilege to have the means of grace and to attend to them from the heart. That's, my friend, the gospel. Last thing I'll say, uh, you need to meditate on all stories in the scripture. The Psalms are fabulous for memorizing, for singing, and for meditating on. Meditate on the Savior's mind in the gospel. They're in the Psalm. It's, the Psalms are probably, aside from Isaiah, probably the clearest Old Testament scripture containing the gospel. And if you are a gospel Christian, you will love to see the gospel everywhere in Scripture. And you will love the Psalms. Not only do they declare the, the gospel in terms of academic dogma, but you will see the mind and the very spirit and the very heart of Jesus. Meditate often on the Savior, on all his goodness in the gospel. That's why the gospels are written. These stories are for you and for your children. Meditate especially on this man that we've looked at today, Judas. Yes, I say, yes. I know, I know, we live in an age where everything has to be positive, but for every positive, there's a negative. I learned that in electrical engineering. Otherwise, nothing works. Your phone won't work. Your iPhone, throw it away. It's not all positive charges, man. It's positive in relation to negative. It's law in relation to gospel and vice versa. You need to spend time thinking about Judas. Yes, you do. And ask yourself, Lord, is it I? Search me. Before it's too late, before it opens, it, it, it breaks out into open scandal in your family, in your in your home, in your in your office, and at church, open scandal and schism. Meditate on Peter as well. He betrayed the Lord Jesus, but it, another outcome. I, I, I may I may have a sermon on Peter versus Judas in the future. Meditate on heaven, on that Passover that he's brought you from that certain death and bondage of sin. Think often of your days. Bricks, more bricks, more bricks, but no more straw and whips with it. Oh, what a great Lord that Satan was, huh? What a wonderful, wonderful man to serve, that fallen angel. Meditate on heaven. You've been brought, there, been brought out of Egypt. You, you are already dining with the elders on Mount Sinai there with Jehovah God. You have taken his name, the I am. You're on your way. The promises of God and Christ are yes and amen. You will have your inheritance. It's free. He's, he's got vineyards and houses. He's got, he's got living wells of water. He's got fruited trees and nut trees. He's got spices and every man under his fig tree. Think often of heaven, but think often of Jesus in heaven, which is all your heaven. Judas, Judas could have thought very carnally of heaven, but not of the Lord Jesus and his love. Heaven is no heaven if God is not in it. And on all your meditation, so again, it's not an academic exercise, you are to use it to warm your heart's affection and to precipitate or to culminate or to lead you into a resolve, a resolution. Heaven is real, therefore I will, you fill in the blank. Hell is real, I dread it, therefore I will. Jesus is real, 
He's my all in all. I don't lose anything by, saving, by following him. Therefore, I will. Positive change. Something needs to change. Something needs to change in you every day. And if it's not changing, that's not repentance. The gospel offers repent, remittance of your sins and repentance unto life for everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that is to be preached to all nations. That's the gospel that's preached here. You may not hear it in this way so directly in every church today, but we need to be faithful in that message because God has loved us and He is a Savior and it's Christ as a total Savior, prophet and priest and king, whom you love. Not just as a priest who died on your, for your sins, but as a prophet who leads you and teaches you, as a king who subdues you. That's the whole Christ that you embrace. That's the only Christ that exists. All other Christs are idols. And so if you have seen this Christ in the preaching of the Gospel of Matthew, though he winner you fiercely, though he give you a spirit of burning, though you feel yourself to be utterly scourged in his discipline, yet you will abide in his house and receive his correction and endure by his grace, putting to death the deeds of the body, and renewing your walk with the Lord. And to all who believe truly with circumcised hearts, to that Israel of God, be peace and glory in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we rest before you today as all that we need, our heart's joy. May we return to you often. May we turn from all others that would lure us into a promise of happiness greater, a blessedness greater than being with you. And forgive us, Lord, for falling for Satan's bait so often. Forgive us for our hypocrisy and our deception. Heal our wounds. Heal our schisms. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's have an offering. Thank you.